and welcome to In Search of the Crystal Skull, an epic adventure into mediocrity. My name is Aaron. My name is Patricia. And we've not done one of these in a while, have we? No, we haven't, especially since uh, we've been uh, pretty busy finishing up the Roldal retrospective. We did Pix minis leading up to Soul. We've been doing Aaron and Patricia. So yeah, we kind of neglected this for quite a while. Yeah, and also I just realized we might actually dated the uh, the Rat Race episode because uh, for those of you who do not know, we actually recorded the Rat Race episode uh, many um, months no, ago. We- we we did it's a mad 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 world. Oh, mad 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 world. Okay, so so basically we did it's a mad 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 world. Um, you know, a while back ago, but uh, obviously then you know we just got really busy going towards the end of the year, so we didn't get a chance to like do any more uh, these episodes. But uh, now we're back on schedule, and uh, this theme is basically going to be uh, hidden gems. So uh, that is uh, going to be what so we're going to go with. So, uh, uh, baby, shall we go down under for our first uh, hidden gem? Yes, we will. Let's get started. Okay, here we go. So in 1990, I went to the theatre for a very rare occasion, uh, up to a place called Macclesfield, which uh, obviously has uh, the one of the theatres over there at the time. And uh, one of the movies that I saw was there was called The Rescuers Down Under. It was a 1990s film released by Disney, and uh, I guess you could say this sort of like was in the embryonic stage of the Renaissance era. I think at this point, because I mean, like uh, with this movie, like uh, the uh, the idea was like to bring back one of the uh, most uh, beloved properties, I guess you could say, of um, Disney from the 1970s, which is the Rescuers. Uh, for those of you who do not know, the Rescuers is basically it's about two mice who uh, go and uh, goes to find uh, the, these children who have sent out SOS signals to uh, this uh, society, and so they uh, in the original adventure they went out to find this uh, girl who was uh, sent to find this hidden treasure, uh, and it was being held captive by her aunt and uh, then in this adventure basically it's a little boy who has basically been captured by this poacher uh, hoping to uh, find this uh, this golden eagle that uh, has uh, also laid these eggs as well so uh, basically that's uh, is the sequel that we go into and uh, you know I can see here's the thing about this when you see the movie and when it, now that I've got myself like a 4k television and everything like that like it's uh, it is pretty immense in when it's on a big screen, but when you really delve into it, it, uh, it does feel kind of flat, really, when uh, you go into kind of more the story-based elements. Yeah, so uh, for those who don't know about The Rescuers Down Under, uh, because here's the thing when it comes to, like, the Disney Renaissance. I mean, everybody, uh, especially from our ages, has grown up with a lot of the Disney films from the late 80s all the way to the late 90s. So this came out in between The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. And the reason why a lot of you guys probably don't even remember this movie very much is because it was only released in theaters for a short while because it just so happened to come out in the same day as Home Alone. And so Disney was like, well, crap, uh, what are we going to do? And so uh, it was there for about a few weeks and then they just pulled it off because they knew that they weren't going to make the amount of money that uh, they were hoping for. So as Aaron mentioned earlier, this was definitely one of the more successful Disney movies of the 1970s. This was during the Bronze Era. I did an entire podcast with my friend Chris Rowdy Seymour about the Disney Bronze Era, so you can go listen to more of that. So out of all the films that came out in the 70s, The Rescuers was the most successful. And when it comes to financial-wise, critical-wise, not really. It was definitely middle of the road. Um, I, even with us who grew up with The Rescuers Down Under, when we first watch that movie and then we go jump into The Rescuers, it's a pretty middle of the road kind of film. I, I just w- rewatched it 
just not too long ago to get myself prepared for this. And yeah, it's still a very middle of the road movie. Uh, and not to say that it's bad. It's just that when you think of movies that came out around the 70s, um, you know, you have the Aristocats, you have Robin Hood, you have the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, and the Rescuers, it's just there. And then you have the whole thing about the 80s, where it basically led up to the nine old men mostly retiring, and then the new generation of animators from the likes of Glenn Keane, Don Bluth, Richard Rich, and various other people started to come in. And now we have led up to the point of the Rescuers Down Under, in which The Little Mermaid became a massive success. And um, they've been wanting to do more of, you know, this um, opportunity to more, make more films. And so the first thing was, hey, let's make a sequel to, um, the, you know, the most successful movie in the 70s. And this movie was played around with ever since 1986. When Crocodile Dundee came out in theaters, they were thinking, let's make that into our next uh, adventure with the rescuers. And so... It was going through developmental hell for quite a while with a lot of the works from, um, you know, finishing up Oliver and Company and then The Little Mermaid. And then finally we get into The Rescuers while a lot of the animators were working on Beauty and the Beast. So, yeah, I guess we can uh, discuss about uh, the significance of the movie as well as why people have mixed reactions to it. So, yeah. yeah. I think one of the things to notice, I think, uh, in in this is that so this was uh, Eva Gabor's, I think, uh, last Disney film, I think, if, yep. I, if I recall correctly, because she would die a couple of years later. Uh, yes, it so. is. And uh, you may know Eva Gabor for uh, the Aristocats. She played as Duchess, and she appeared in the original Rescuers as Miss Bianca. And, yes, uh, she appeared in the Rescuers Down Under, and this was one of the last movies that she was a part of right before she died a few years later in 1995. Yeah, and would you believe that uh, the uh, person, Bob Newhart, is still with us today, the uh, good old age at 91? Yes, uh, and you may know Bob Newhart for a couple of other roles. I mean, he was uh, very well known for being in uh, Elf. You may know him as Papa Elf. He was in The Big Bang Theory as Professor Proton. Uh, he was in uh, The Librarian, which is uh, a movie that was around in 2004, which eventually spun off into uh, a series. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he was in a lot of um, sitcoms around the 60s. Uh, there was Bob, the, the Bob Newhart show. There was Bob, George and Leo. But uh, yeah, I, I guess for our generation, he was, you know, Papa Elf and the Elf and then Professor Proton and the Big Bang Theory. But yeah, he is still alive at the age of 91. And he played uh, Mr. Bernard in both the original Rescuers and in Rescuers Out Under. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that's a bit uncharacteristic, I think, for a 90s Disney movie is that uh, there are no song or dance numbers in this. No, there isn't. In fact, this is the only one that has absolutely no song or dance numbers, which is interesting because when you take a look at the original Rescuers, there were three songs that played throughout the movie. I mean, none of the characters were singing. It's akin to something like Bambi or um, The Fox and the Hound, or if you want to go for a more later film, Tarzan or Brother Bear, in which there'll be like intersplicing songs here and there uh, to talk about what's going on with the theme. You have um, Rescue Aid Society, you have Tomorrow's Another Day, Someone's Waiting for You, The Journey. But here in, in Rescue Us Down Under, there is no songs. I mean, there's just a lot of instrumentals in this, which um, definitely plays into the theme of, you know, we're in the Australian outback and there's going to be a lot of adventure ensue. So, yeah, I, and you, when you look at Little Mermaid, and then when you take a look at the movie that came out afterward, which is Beauty and the Beast, both of which became financially and critically successful. I mean, Beauty and the Beast became the first animated film to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture. 
And so they were like, yeah, this is their direction we need to go in. And so Rescuers Down Under has always been seen as like the black sheep of the bunch, even more so than some of the weaker films that a lot of people point out that came out during this time period, like Pocahontas or, or um, um, I guess uh, for some people say, say Hercules, some people say Tarzan, but yeah, Rescuers Down Under is definitely like the black sheep of the bunch. It's completely different from the films that would come out during that time period. Yeah. So, um, I mean, also on top of that as well, um, The Westerners Down Under is, uh, you know, basically, you could say it's one of those movies that basically has a pretty explicit environmental message in it as well. Like, uh, this is an anti-poaching movie, I think we can definitely say. And, uh, you know, this came out around the time, you know, obviously there's Fern Gully, the Rattlewing Forest, and there's Captain Planet and the Planeteers. It was like, it was following a theme at that time during the 90s, I think you could say. Yeah. Yeah, and, and also there would be like a lot of other films that would try to cash in on that. There was Once Upon a Forest, uh, that was the Hanna-Barbera film that they did around the early to mid-90s. There was, yeah, there was a lot of environmental message, and I guess for here, there is an anti-poaching, which of course, you know, poaching is bad, you shouldn't do it, but yeah, um, it, it's... If you take a look into it, um, if you've watched it as a standalone film, yeah, it, it can be pretty intense at points. Uh, if you watch it and you know about the original Rescuers, it's almost kind of like similar to the first movie, except that it's changed around a bit. Instead of a little girl who's an orphan and who's being taken in by um, a woman named Madame Medusa so that she can be able to get the diamond, it's about a little boy who befriends an eagle named... Um, was it Matuhide or something like that? And, you know, he knows about the eggs. And there's a poacher by the name of McLeach who kidnaps the boy so that he can be able to get the eggs. You have Bernard and Miss Bianca coming in and rescuing him just like they did in the first film. You have a lizard um, ad adversary with um, the first film being um, Nero and Brutus, the crocodiles who are alongside with Madame Medusa in the first movie. In, the in this movie, you have Joanna, who is um, McLeach's uh, lizard, who is alongside with him and who captures all the little animals and who gets the eggs. Um, you have... Um, another companion who's alongside with Bernard and Miss Bianca. I mean, in, in, a few, in the first movie's case, you have like a little bit of a, a, a collage of animals who are just there for a little bit. And then you have um, even Root, who's like the little dragonfly who would help go from place to place with them when they're in the water. You have Orville, who is the albatross. And then in this movie, you have Wilbur, who's his brother. You have Jake, who is the... Um, outback mouse and you have a few other animals who are locked up in cages so and then you know you have this huge climax with them in water and um madame medusa you know and um McLeach, they get um um you know defeated in the end and then you know the kids get rescued so yeah it, if you look at it face on it's almost similar to the first movie but there's a lot of differences to it that we'll discuss about i think one of the things that i think we can definitely say is that uh, i mean in regards to how technical it is i mean it's uh, it's a pretty standard you know movie of like you know uh, an adventure with like you know a kid and animals and uh, things like that and eventually like you know the 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 bad guy gets his comeuppance in the end Pretty much, and uh, it, it just so. Uh, there's an interesting debate that seems to be going on within the, uh, you know, within the people who like watch the rescuers and then watch the rescuers down under. Is this movie better than the original movie? Um, I would say that when it comes to the action and the um, suspense, I would say that yes, the rescuers down under is actually better than the rescuers. A lot of people may complain about the rescuers being really slow paced. And that's a lot of the 70s Disney movies in a nutshell in which they're very slow paced. 
you really need, I mean, I guess the only exception would be Robin Hood and Winnie the Pooh. I mean, I, with Winnie the Pooh, it works to his advantage. But yeah, I think that with Rescuers and the Aristocats and probably some of the later movies that came out in the 60s, they're very slow paced movies, which I guess by a younger audience, they would get kind of bored with it. Yeah, but well, d- during the 80s and 90s, I mean, like uh, we were in like in like the 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 the, uh, the, epi- the epicenter of like, you know, the the the, uh, the thorough action movies. At this point, like you know, it was like it was the Terminator, it was RoboCop, you know, it was like uh, you know, there was a lot, there was a lot of uh, uh, movies out there that were like pushing the action, and I think uh, Disney, I think, had to respond to that, I think, and uh, they had to up the ante themselves. I mean, like look at Aladdin, for example, like you know, look at the, all the action scenes that are in that movie, and exactly. uh, you, you look at the, and, uh, you know, it's all there's all Beauty and the Beast, even though it's supposed to be kind of like you know, uh, uh, you know, a love slash Stockholm syndrome movie, like you know, even that has like you know, a, a massive fight on the roof and stuff like that, like uh, it. Was uh, is what Disney was, you know, trying to, you know, capture at the time, and uh, the rescue is down under is part of that theme, really. Yeah, exactly. So something like the, uh, you know, trying to uh, cash in on the feel and the atmosphere of the original rescuers wasn't going to cut it by the '90s because then kids would have complained that it's too slow, it's too boring, it's uneventful, and they would have just switched off to it right away. So they really needed to up the stakes here. So, yeah. but do you say- think? Do you think also that kind of works against the movie in some way because you're kind of like sacrificing, like you know, oh, here's this exciting scene and here's that exciting scene, but then it's kind of like, well, what's this got to do with the story? you know yeah uh, there's another thing that we need to bring up so um as you guys uh, have listened to the podcast that chris and i have been doing in terms of two particular eras the silver era and the bronze slash dark era so after the failure of sleeping beauty they had used the xerox treatment in which they would just get like copies of drawings and then draw them over that and it had that like sketchy pencil look because they needed to cut cost on the movies and they did this all the way from 101 dalmatians to the little mermaid the rescuers down under was the very first disney film in which they utilized the cap system so for those who don't know what the cap system is it stands for computer animation production system this is when they did digital ink and paint they were able to um, do digital cells and they did, uh, ba- you know, scan background art so that they can be able to utilize computer technology with traditional animation. And yeah, I, I think that uh, they were breaking new ground with the rescuers down under. Every single Disney movie from that point on would be using the cap system until we eventually, you know, scrap the whole uh, traditional animation altogether and use mostly computers. So I guess this was them just utilizing, hey, you know, we're using this brand new cap system. This is all the cool stuff that we can do. Yeah, it does kind of make you wonder, though, after watching the movie, you know, again, and then kind of like seeing all the flaws that are kind of like in it, like you can kind of see how, like, you know, it, you can definitely see it's like it's, uh, you know, uh, in 4K. It's like you can see like some of the faults and like some of like uh, how, uh, also how smooth it is as well. Like uh, the smoothness, I think it jags from like, uh, you know, certain frames and then all of a sudden it's like the action just kind of kicks in. You know, like all of a sudden it just goes like you know really smooth. So it's kind of jagged in the way that it translates over to Disney Plus when uh, when we watched it. And uh, it kind of makes me wonder, like, uh, would it have been more appreciated? Do you think the fact that it's uh, a theatrical release, do you think that's the reason why it's kind of looked a bit more down upon by certain people rather than let's say it would like say, oh hey, you know that uh, straight to DVD movie we saw of Rescuers Down Under? It was actually kind of epic, you know, when we saw it in saw it in our living rooms. 
You know, like uh, maybe if they kind of oh, like downscaled it, maybe maybe it probably would have been more appreciated. Maybe I don't know. No, nah, I don't. I don't think so. Probably because of two reasons. One, they did that already with the direct-to-video Disney sequels, with the likes of Return of Jafar and uh, The Lion King Two, and various others. Well, wait and a second. If they, well, the, no, I was saying like during like the beginning of the nineties. If they, like, they, if they did it at that time, don't release it in theaters, but kind of like have it as like either a TV movie or have it as like a, you know a directive video movie. Rather, hmm. I don't know because I think that if they were able to scale it back, I don't know if we will be able to um, appreciate all the technical aspects that this movie would do and inspire for other movies because the cap system would be utilized in so many ways other than just the Disney movies. I mean, it would be utilized in uh, a whole bunch of other uh, features. And I think that if we didn't have you know, this system, then, you know, animation the way it was back then, it would never been utilized and it would have never been um, featured as the way it is. And this is basically when, you know, companies had to really step up their game saying, oh man, look what Disney is doing. We need to cash in on them. I mean, we already talked about like, you know, the, um, the mockbusters that were trying to cash in on Disney's success. And, you know, if it wasn't for Rescuer showcasing that new style of animation, then I don't know where we would be. So I think that what it did in terms of its technical aspects is something to be really appreciated of. And we did praise the animation for it, Aaron. But story-wise is where we have issues with this movie yeah there's just scenes in here that just don't glue and on top of that as well we're introduced to characters like you know for like maybe like five or ten minutes in the movie and that's the only time you'll ever get to see them again you know like yeah uh, it, 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 it makes me wonder like at the very end of the movie you know like when we saw like all the animals that were locked up it's kind of like you know they're still in the basement while they're all flying <laughs> up into the sunset or flying into the moon or whatever it was yeah you know? Yeah, and that's kind of like an issue that was in the first movie as well, in which uh, you have the albatross Orville, and you would think that if you've seen on the posters and in the trailers, he's going to be a major character, but he's only in that first act, and then throughout the most majority of the movie, we get to focus on Evenroot, which is the little um, dragonfly that goes around, but he doesn't even talk, and then you have like you know, these little group of animals that live in the bayou, and you see them for a little bit, and then they just show up until the climax, so... Yeah, that's that was actually an issue even with the first movie in which they just introduce all these characters and then they wouldn't show up until they were relevant to the plot. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of people are wondering about Joanna, like, you know, uh, who, what, what exactly is Joanna? And uh, mm. that was like a big Apparently, uh, according to um, a reliable source of the interwebs, apparently Joanna is supposed to be a monitor lizard. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Joanna, you know, kind of like is done the same way as Nero and Brutus was in the first movie, in which she's alongside with her master and she, you know, is capturing all the creatures that try to escape. And, you know, she has this really funny uh, moment where she actually eats McLeach's eggs. Uh, but yeah, basically, she's like your companion. And, you know, she does have a few funny moments, but. Uh, um, as for like the other characters that were featured like afterwards, you know, you have the, the animals that are locked in the cage and, you know, they're there and then they don't really feature that much. And then afterwards you have this subplot about Wilbur who, uh, his back is being busted. And so he's in the hospital wing and there's these mice who are crazy to be quite honest, of uh, trying to quote unquote heal him. And they're just doing more damage than good. But that has absolutely nothing to do with the plot with the boy. And then you do focus on the plot with, um, you know, the boy being captured by McLeach. And then 
then we have to cut into you know Bernard and Miss Bianca's plot, where it takes a page from Frozen two over twenty something years later, in which Bernard is trying to ask Miss Bianca to marry him, but he can't because of all the situations that are going on, especially since we have Jake coming into the picture and wooing Miss Bianca with his bravery. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, this is the thing that kind of like plays out throughout the whole film. Like, uh, yeah, know, exactly. Like, yeah. So uh, there was there was that, and so, I don't know. Like, I don't think it was. Um, I don't know because it was. I think you probably. I probably would imagine that. I think maybe uh, this is actually a good question. Like, how many people who have watched the Rescuers Down Under actually watched the original movie? Practically nobody, because when I was a kid, I didn't know anybody who saw the original Rescuers. I mean, I think that you know, for some people, there was on VHS. I think it was. A, I think it was released on VHS roughly around the same time that the Rescuers Down Under would have been coming out. So. For uh, when I first saw the movie, we just knew about the rescuers down under. We knew absolutely nothing about the rescuers. I wouldn't have known about the rescuers until well, about a few years later, uh, after I saw the rescuers down under. So, yeah, w- when I talk to some people, talk uh, you know, discussing about you know, what do you think of the rescuers compared to the rescuers down under? They either have never seen it or they say, oh, it's not as good as the rescuers down under. That's the way superior film, and then they just leave it as that. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of makes me wonder though, because I actually do like the idea of the rescuers. When you think about it, like you know, it's this, uh, it's this bunch of mice who, um, you know, get messages from kids and uh, you know go out and try and help them. You know, like uh, they're probably a more acceptable version of the Care Bears in some way. <laughs> like you know, like uh, they. Uh, so, uh, but mind you, the problem is, I think the believability of uh, of them kind of like um, you know uh, kind of goes out of the way because uh, there's this bit where the Bernard somehow musters like the strength of like ten men and like manages to like you know rescue the boy out of like the uh, out of the water. And I was like, how the hell does he do that? I like, have no idea. That that is actually a good question. It's like, what did he did he get the strength from his um, courage to like pull a boy that's like one million time his size? I mean, I know that mice are strong. You know what, Patricia? I I'm just thinking that. about this. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe this isn't the sequel to the original Rescuers. Maybe this is the sequel to the re- to the uh, Secret of Nim. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe this is the idea that Don Bluth had and Disney stole it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Uh, you you know what? I wouldn't be surprised, considering that Don Bluth actually worked on the Rescuers. <laughs> so uh, yeah, but uh, in regards to yeah, there are some, some unbelievable moments in that, and uh, it kind of goes against you know, I mean, believability in some way. And I get it's a Disney movie, but uh, I don't know. There, the fact that you have like real human characters, you kind of expect there to be some kind of like you know stability within the objects in the world, if you will. Like you know, there there is a sense of gravity. But um, uh, you know, this is—I think this is what goes against the rescuers, I, I guess. And uh, I know the film was not a great success in regards to credit. I know it wasn't like uh, you know a big boom like uh, all the other Disney Renaissance era movies were. Oh, but, not uh, oh, not even close. Yeah, exactly. I actually, but, the, I actually have the reviews right here, and we'll get to that when we discuss yeah, about. I, I, I want to finish. This, I want to finish this point. I really do think that I like the idea of the rescuers, and uh, I would not be opposed somewhere down the line for them to say, "Oh, hey, we're we're going to do some more adventures of uh, the, you know the rescuers, and maybe even do it." TV series or something like that. Yeah, because you know, I, like I would have been surprised that they would have done that because, as you know, they did that around the '90s. We had the Little Mermaid animated series. We had, um, you know, the Timon and Pumbaa animated series, Aladdin the animated series, Hercules the animated series, Tarzan the animated series. But yeah, the only ones who didn't get an animated series were Pocahontas, uh, Rescuers Down Under, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and. Uh, yeah, so basically, those were the only ones that didn't get a um, an animated series. I mean, it was the only one 
out of the 10 movies that didn't even get a direct-to-video Disney movie. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, just think about this as well. Like, you know, what we've been to, uh, I mean, we've been to Louisiana, we've been to uh, to Australia. I mean, like, uh, where else could they potentially go? I mean, could they go to Japan? Could they go to China? I mean, uh, could they go into Africa? You know, like, uh, I think we're all about. It's a world that feels like it's got a lot of possibilities. You know, when you think yeah, about it. Right? Exactly. Like in the uh, in the Rescuers books, because as you guys know, this was based off of a book series written by Marjorie Sharp. Um, there were books that took place in uh, Asia. There were books that took place in the Antarctic. Um, there were uh, books that took place in, I think, what was it? Like some tropical country. I, I don't think they even say which tropical country it is. But yeah, there were actually like some parts of it where Bernard and well, a lot of it is based on Miss Bianca. And then the last two books are about Bernard. So yeah, they could have traveled to multiple places. Yeah, like uh, I mean, obviously, you know, we don't have um, you know Eva Gabor isn't isn't around anymore, and Bob Newhart signs kind of like you know start to uh, I don't know if he's retired or not. I'm not too sure if he's still acting at this bit at his age of ninety one. But uh, you know, like you could probably like do maybe a reboot, maybe like can just have like some you know, have new voice actors voice actors for this uh, for these roles. You know, like yeah, uh, I, I think that they they think I think that you know very similar to like. Um, a lot of Disney remakes and people saying, oh, you know, uh, you know, why can't, you know, Disney remakes be like uh, Pete's Dragon or The Jungle Book? It's like, you know, people know about these movies. They're not part of the classics, but when they were brought back, people love them. As opposed to like, hey, let's take these beloved Disney movies that a lot of people love and remake them. It's like, okay, no. And we've, been, we've mentioned this many times before that, hey, why don't you take you know, Disney movies that didn't work out the first time and bring them back. Do the same thing with Atlantis or Treasure Planet or any of those things. The Rescuers would be perfect because you have the 70s version, which not a lot of people know about, and then you have the 1990 version, which is a cult classic. So, yeah, the Rescuers definitely deserve to come back. Yeah. I can sort of see the idea of why they never did a uh, a live-action version of Treasure Planet because I think, uh, I mean, I could probably imagine it being kind of a bit like, you know, a bit like Tomorrowland. In a way, like, you know, it's... Yeah, uh, and, and, yeah. And exactly. And I think that because that Disney has already done a lot of Treasure Island movies, especially with Muppets Treasure Island and the one that, that came out in the 50s, I don't think that they need to delve anymore into Treasure Island adaptations anymore. No, not really. I think uh, they've already got their pirate series, which is Pirates of the Caribbean. So uh, yeah, yeah, so it's, it's not really that necessary. But yeah, so I guess let's go more into the story. So... Um, yeah, so we have Cody, who uh, knows about uh, this eagle, and he's Played by Adam to... Ryan, by the way. <laughs> yes, play, played by Adam Ryan. And then we have this poacher by the name of McLeach, who's played by the late Jorcy Scott. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Jorcy Scott being Jorcy Scott as always. I mean, he is such a good actor for playing these awful antagonists. Mm -hmm. And... Then you have the story about him trying to find the eagle and the egg so that he can be able to take the eggs and give it to Joanna. And then he can be able to take the bird and make a lot of money of it because he's a poacher. And so he kidnaps the boy and keeps him there to reveal on where the eagle is. And then we have Bernard and Miss Bianca going all the way to Australia and rescuing the boy, Cody. And then you have the subplot about Bernard being nervous about asking Miss Bianca to marry him, which... Uh, it's actually interesting about Bernard being almost kind of like a changed character in a way. In the first movie, Bernard was very superstitious and he was afraid of a lot of things. Like uh, he, you know, was 
getting slowly the courage of, you know, doing things like going into the dark or going across a hole or something. And then, you know, as time goes on, he starts mustering up the courage. And, you know, we have here in which he's afraid for a different reason in which he's trying to propose to Miss Bianca. Yeah. And then it's like, it's kind of weird, like, because there must, don't you get the feeling between the 1977 movie and the 1990 movie that uh, some things must have happened in between to get to this point, don't you think? I think that they had a lot more adventures since then, because as you guys know from the first movie, Bernard wasn't a member of the Rescue Aid Society. He was a janitor. And the only reason why he got the job in the first place was because when he was getting the uh, the bottle to open up for Penny's distress was Miss Bianca noticed that Bernard was kind of like a brave little mouse. And so she decided to take him along to the journey of finding this little girl who's trapped in um, the bayou trying to get this diamond. And so, yeah, I take it that since then, Bernard and Miss Bianca must have been on many adventures. And even Miss Bianca's a little bit different. In the first movie, you know, it, it was kind of like a way to prove herself because, you know, she's a woman and women don't go on missions to, to rescue kids. And so it's kind of like a way of proving herself. And there were some moments in which she was a little bit incompetent, but at the same time, there were moments in which she was very brave. And you can tell that she's a lot braver and a lot more smarter in this movie than she was in the first movie. Yeah. And yeah, I think that there was a lot of things that happened between the first two movies. Yeah. So, uh, so I mean, to get to that point, I mean, it's, uh, it would be interesting is like, you know, this is the thing about this. This is the reason why we say we kind of criticize the story a little bit because, I mean, once we, um, I mean, obviously they uh, they get this mission and, uh, you know, where Bernard's uh, whole uh, idea of proposing obviously is foiled and uh, then uh, they have to get there somehow. And uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the uh, service that they usually normally use is uh, no longer around anymore because obviously the voice actor had passed away. So, they have to rely on Wilbur now, who is uh, going to be our new um, uh, flight into uh, into Australia. So yeah, and yeah, the, the original actor for Orville, Jim Jordan, uh, you probably know him for a lot of uh, movies and TV shows. He actually did pass away in 1988, which is why they couldn't utilize the character. So they brought in the late Canadian uh, comedian John Candy to play as his brother Wilbur. And yeah, Wilbur is definitely a lot more interactive. Uh, he has a lot more personality than Orville because as I mentioned before, Orville is only in the first act. He just drops them off and then we focus more on Evenroot. And then in this movie, we do get to see Wilbur and he does interact with the characters and he does um, have his funny moments, but then he gets sidelined because his back is aching. And then we have another plot in which now that his back is fine and he's able to find the eagle's nest, now he has to sit down and lay the eggs and that's pretty much all they use with him. Yeah, like it just, um, it looks like they actually were building something up to like, uh, you know, have like some kind of massive payoff because, you know, we see him suffering in like in this whole hospital or something like that. It's like, you know, uh, I don't know if he was going to like play like some kind of massive role, but it's, no, he just kind of gets sidelined. He's just, uh, you know, doing the eggs and just ends up being thrown as like, you know, the ending gag of the movie. You yeah, know. he was clearly there for comic relief. I mean, it's John Candy. I mean, the same guy from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and Uncle Buck, and Cool Running. So, you know, he's a funny guy. Let's put in him funny moments. I mean, they, they did the same thing when they cast... Um, uh, what was that? The, the the actor for Scuttle for uh, the Little Mermaid, and I think that they were trying to do something similar here, in which they wanted to have like, oh, we have this bird character, and uh, let's have him be the funny one. Uh, so, uh, I, Buddy Hackett, that's what I meant to say. I, you know, it's funny because we just saw It's a Mad, 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 Mad World not long ago, and he was in that movie. So, anyway, 
So yeah, so Buddy Hackett, you know, he was the funny white bird character. So let's have another funny white bird character with a comedian. So I take it that this is them trying to strike the same, um, you know, lightning in the bottle twice. Yeah, it was kind of like, uh, what was the name of that uh, cat character in uh, an American Tale 2? Uh, in oh, um, as well. Tiger. 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 Yeah, he was kind of like. Wasn't he? Wasn't Tiger kind of like sidelined in the same way? Wasn't he like? Tiger it, it... wasn't okay. So Tiger was in the first movie, but he was like all the way toward the third act, and then in the second movie, there was a lot of focus on him until we get to him being a god, and then he was kind of like sidelined for a while, and then he was brought back again in the third act for him to be the sheriff of Green River. So. Kind of, yeah, in a way. Yeah, like, it was just, it was, uh, I don't know what the deal was, like, taking, like, you know, your most funny character and, like, uh, you know, they finally got it right when they got to Aladdin. You know, it was like, you know, they, they put Robin Williams, like, front and center to, like, say, oh, hey, you know, here's, here's the hilarious genie and, uh, you know, he does all these jokes and uh, he's going to basically be the, the life of the movie in that way. Yeah, so well, it took them a, a while to get there, but they eventually did. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's a long story about that that we don't have time for. You know, the whole, you know, uh, Robin Williams doing a lot of improv and the whole lie about, you know, oh, you're not going to be in that much marketing in the movie. You don't have to worry about that, says Jeffrey Katzenberg. And so, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wrong. <laughs> so, But yeah, I, I think that's what they were trying to do. It's like they were trying to utilize like a funny side character. And I guess the genie from a Aladdin was like their main ticket. And so they try to do a lot of other funny side characters throughout the course of the 90s to try to cash in the spark of what they got. Uh, you know, you have, um, you know, Eddie Murphy as Mushu. You have Rosie O'Donnell as Turk. Um, you have the Gargoyles. One of them is voiced by Jason Alexander. And, you know, you, a lot of people knew him from Seinfeld and he's funny. So, yeah, around the 90s, they really try to find their next genie. And I guess this was like what their second attempt Scuttle didn't exactly work out, and neither did, um, you know, Wilbur in The Rescuers Down Under, but the genie, they, you know, third time's the charm. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting about this? Uh, I'm sorry to kind of, like, segue from this, but uh, this, mo this movie had several box arts for it. Yeah, you realize yes, and, that? Yeah. Oh, 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 trust me. I mean, you have to imagine because of the huge influence that the animation was, there is a lot of unique box art for this. I mean, every single one of them is different and showcasing the beauty of this film. So uh, it's not too surprising. I think that we even saw some um some um, some art when we were at the Disney store if you remember. Yeah. They even did the uh, they even did a new one for like the uh, the, the uh, 35th anniversary edition. Like, yes, they uh, did. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you know, you got the rescuers and the rescuers down under all in uh, all in one collection. I think that was at the time in which they knew that fans really liked this film. So they decided to push it a little bit more and to utilize, um, you know, more fancy looking box art to utilize um, the fact that since more people, you know, appreciated the film as opposed to when it came out over 35 years ago, then they can be able to, you know, push more into um, marketing it. It's kind of like how when The Nightmare Before Christmas was just that little film that they didn't know it was going to be a success, so they put it into Touchstone, and then when it became a hit in the 2000s, they were like, oh, yeah, 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 we're, we're involved with that movie. Yeah, we're going to give you all the merchandise, so maybe yeah. it's like that. Actually, enough, like, uh, this, uh, they, at one point, they actually did, like, a Steelbox series. Like, so, it, like, it came, like, in a Steelbox with, like, you know, some other stuff in it, so... Something. Yeah, th th I I remember that. Yeah, so it's like uh, it's interesting, really. Like uh, for a movie that uh, didn't get uh, as much love as various other ones, it definitely got a lot of releases. Oh yeah, yeah. when uh, I think that very similar to like 
all dogs go to heaven and you know other films that it got more successful when it was released on vhs when people when people saw the vhs releases and it started skyrocketing i think that's when the appreciation for the film really shined so yeah i think that's why that more people started um gravitating to the rescuers down under and then the rescuers just became like a footnote in disney history Mm mm-hmm so, um, obviously, then, eventually, we are introduced to our villain, and, uh, you know, it's, um, it's interesting, really, I mean, like, uh, it's, um, it, he's not really a fun villain, he is a threatening villain, I think we'd definitely say that, but, uh, I mean, at the same time, he's also kind of one-dimensional as well, like, uh, he's a poacher, you know, like, uh, there's not... Well, there's I would like- say that... I would say that he's definitely a little bit more interesting than Clayton from Tarzan was because he was kind of like a poacher as well. Yeah, like, uh, is it just me? Like, uh, can we really, like, say, like, uh, any you know, villains that were, like, poachers or, like, you know, collectors or anything like that? They weren't really, they don't really make, they don't really make that many interesting villains, do they? Corella Deville. Corella Deville, yeah. Like, I mean, Corella Deville was like, you know, well, she's rather the exception rather than the rule. I mean, like, I saw that as well. She wanted, like, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, strip, you know, a bunch of puppies to, like, you know, uh, you know. That's still gathering animals and using them for something awful. Well, yeah, it is, and so, but uh, I don't know. Like, uh, in regards to uh, in regards to McLeish, uh, I mean, like, uh, he's obviously, you know, plays the part, and his voice actor is, does a phenomenal job with it, and uh, also he can be funny, like, when put in certain skits, but. Uh, at the same time, like uh, he is sort of um, sort of predictable in a way. Like uh, maybe that yeah, goes towards like, his character in some way. But uh, you know, yeah, when we get to the yeah, when we get to the point where like uh, oh yeah, he's gonna like hold the kid hostage until he gets like you know his uh, things with the birds and uh, he's gonna like do all that. But some of the stuff he did was pretty demented, like throwing knives at uh, Cody and uh, you know obviously locking him up with the animals and stuff like that. So he was uh, he, he was threatening in that way, but. Uh, yeah, I, I just think uh, maybe, uh, he, but I don't know, like, there's some bits I do like about him, but at the same time, there are some things I don't really like about him. I think they made him too stupid in some way. Like, Yeah, well, it? I mean, he even mentioned in the movie that he has a third grade education. But why, so yeah, why, it, why, why, why do that, though? Like, you know, wouldn't it be more terrifying if he, like, he, he exactly 100% knew what he was doing? Yeah, like. Uh, well, I, I guess we can't make our villains too competent. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, like uh, it's uh, so. I, I guess I guess maybe over the years we've been kind of spoiled with villains because uh, now that the Marvel movies have basically become a thing now. Like, and you know, keep in mind, Stan Lee made all his uh, villain scientists and like you know really smart people. So you know, like he said, like how on earth did they come up with this stuff? You know, like uh, it's uh, so. It would be nice to maybe like say, you know, oh, hey, this is a guy who is, uh, you know, had to kind of just read it out on his own. You know, he's built this customized, you know, monstrous machine. You know, to obviously, you know, terrify, you know, uh, animals and humans alike and everything like that. I don't know. I think uh, that would have been, yeah, yeah. It's a petty criticism, maybe. Maybe it was probably. You, know, you had to give him some kind of weakness, I guess, and uh, maybe him being uh, a bit too, a bit, a bit too dim to uh, realize that, you know, he could have just shot the kid and thrown him in the water and uh, you know, he said he had to make these elaborate schemes. I don't know. You know that's, that's just me. Yeah, and, and he, it's a shame that, you know, when it comes to, like, comparing him to the Disney villains that would have came out around the Renaissance era, he's definitely, like, one of the lower ones. He's not going to be as remembered as, say, Ursula, uh, Gaston, Jafar, Scar... Uh, he's definitely like around the same veins as Clayton or um, Radcliffe, I guess you could say. But yeah, he's not like in the top bill of Disney, mo- uh, mo- you know, Disney movie villains, especially with around the time that it came out. Yeah. And, and the story-wise, it's 
you know, the same way too. I mean, it's kind of weak. And it has a lot of, you know, side plots that don't really matter in the end. I mean, you have the thing with Wilbur, and that doesn't really amount to much. And then you have, um, you know, the animals trying to escape. But again, that doesn't really amount to much. And... Yeah, I mean, then yeah, you have the subplot. I think, with- I think what we're trying to get, at, I think, is that look when we when they say the money is on the screen, it's literally on the screen. Like it's uh, it's not in the story. It's uh, definitely not in the music as well. Like I couldn't actually remember like any of the scores of like this. Which movie. is kind of which is kind of strange, considering that the, the music was done by Bruce Broughton, and he's done a lot of amazing soundtracks. Uh, for movies, TV shows, and video games. I mean, this is the same guy who did music for Tiny Toons and for, um, what else was there? I think there was uh, Harry and the Hendersons and um, the Homeward Bound movies and a lot of the other Disney movies that would come out. But yeah, I mean, the fact that the movie is supposed to be like this really epic thing with like this action intense Australian music, it's, you know, kind of for gettable and that's that's just the thing is that other than the beautiful animation and you know some action-packed moments there's not really much to say yeah. I, i'm sorry to you know you know disappoint everyone i think that we're gonna get the same critiques that we did with um you know people saying that we thought that el dorado and joseph king of dreams was simply okay because a lot of people really do love this movie yeah interestingly enough uh, shelby flynn's actually has a couple of uh, uh tracks in this movie um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Anyway, but um, if you want us to go more into how the critics felt about it, I mean, the critics, I mean, they pretty much said the same thing that we said, in which a lot of people, they love the animation, but the story is pretty ho-hum. I'm going to read off some of the examples. Like, uh, we have, um, let's see, I'm going to pull one up. Okay. So we have uh, this website, uh, gonewiththetwins.com, and uh, he uh, rated it uh, 6 out of 10, who says, The overall story is less poignant than in the previous film, but the main characters still have charm, and several new supporting roles are undeniably creative. And uh, Roger Ebert, when he reviewed it in 2000, uh, he gave it a 3 out of 4, saying, The flight sequences and many other action scenes in this new Disney animated feature create an exhilarating and freedom that are liberating. And the rest of the story is fun, too. Um, And pretty much a lot of people say the same thing. I mean, they just talk about, oh, man, you know, it's an animated adventure. It looks gorgeous. And they don't really say too much about story or characters. I mean, I think they were just really blown away by the animation more than anything else. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, you you know, I've used the term tech demo. In Pixmix and that. This is literally uh, but, a demo movie. Yeah, exactly. But no, but in this movie, at least there's like, uh, you know, at least there's a story arc. At least there's like a story to go around. And like, you know, there's a kid that he's rescuing from like this evil poacher who himself is trying to, uh, you know, capture this uh, very rare eagle. And he's already killed the dad eagle. And now he wants to get the other one because he's going to make him insanely rich. And, uh, you know, the rescuers have got to stop him. And, uh, you know, so, and also, you know, we got Bernard trying to, you know, ask, uh, you know, for, for, you know, for, for proposals. So at least there's story elements there i mean like it's far more than what we could have said like you say say the good dinosaur or anything like that i mean like uh, uh, at least we can say there's a story here it's a basic story and uh, it's not got much uh, meat on the bone but at least you can say it's a meal 
Yeah, know? I mean, if it would have came out in eight in the eighties when they were working on it, I think it would have been a really competent movie. It definitely would have been a lot better than some of the stuff that they were released at the time. It would have been better than the Little Mermaid. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, definitely <laughs> but I not. Think it, I think it would have been a lot better than, say, Oliver and Company or The Black Cauldron. But oh, it, yeah. it is miles better than The Black Cauldron. Oh, oh absolutely, it is. Yeah. But um, as for like you know coming out in the tail beginning of the Renaissance, it came out bef- after Be- um, Little Mermaid, but before Beauty and the Beast. So you have two juggernauts in the Disney animation Renaissance era. So there's a there's a reason why a lot of people felt that you know it's not going to cut it anymore because even though that we have the animation there's a reason why Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast are still the classics that they are people remember the characters people remember the songs people remember the story as for the rescuers down under we remember the animation story and characters I mean you have McLeach and Bernard and Miss Bianca are back and you have Wilbur and Jake and Joanna but. I don't remember anybody else. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, in regards to, like, you know, um, the rescuers coming back, you know, um, you might get a bit of, like, repulsion because, obviously, they're going to make it a live-action movie, if anything. But, uh, you know, I actually, and, uh, if they did, it probably would look a bit like Stuart Little. But, uh, you know, I, I would be interested to see what they would do with it. You know, and yeah. uh, see, uh, see where else it can go. Because, obviously, as you said before, there's more stories out there for them to tell. So, oh yeah, there's yeah. a lot more stories of them to tell. Exactly. So I think uh, if uh, if Disney brought it back, I'd I'd actually be happy about it. You know. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, exactly. I mean, I think that um, if they were to stick to the original source material, in which um, you know Miss Bianca helps a prisoner in jail, then yeah, sure, let's talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think mean, kids will get into it. I, I think uh, you know with uh, the way things are being talked about in society right now, I think uh, you know they could probably put something around that. I think. So, uh, yeah, and, and as I mentioned uh, before during the uh, Disney Bronze Age era podcast, Walt Disney didn't want to do this movie because uh, he felt it was too political. And so that's why they sidelined it until about 10 years after his death. Well, so, I guess uh, he would have been thrilled to see what happened with Disney in 2021 and 2020. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So, uh, yeah, but, um, you know, here's the thing about The Rescuers Down Under. I like this movie, and if someone put it on, I wouldn't mind it. But, uh, I mean, in reg- just, uh, I would say to everybody, if, you know, in regards to an underrated gem, you know, definitely you are in for a bit of a treat, but uh, don't ask for far too much, because I guarantee you, if you ask for, you know, uh, Beauty and the Beast, you know, Little Mermaid, Aladdin proportions of entertainment. I don't think you're going to find it here. Yeah, and for those who have no memories or nostalgia connections to either the Rescuers or the Rescuers Down Under, and you probably heard an online critic saying, oh man, Rescuers Down Under was such an underrated gem. It was a masterpiece that a lot of people didn't watch when it came out in theaters, and it should be more appreciated. And you're expecting this big epic movie you're going to get some parts of it, but you're going to be disappointed that the story and characters don't match up to the animation quality. Are we referring to a washed-up critic that's sort of into nostalgia when we say that? Or, uh... um, One of many, but sure. <laughs> one of many. Oh, my goodness. You, yeah, we're not in the 2010s anymore, ladies and gentlemen. You know, <laughs> all the 2000s. Right. So, yeah, but I think we yeah. should rate this movie now. So, uh, I think, okay. uh, you know, like uh, right now, I think it holds like uh, around 68, 70% on Rotten Tomatoes last time I checked. So, uh, you know, I think it's, 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 current, it's currently a 70%. Yeah, I would say a seven. You know, like it's, it's, it's fair. 
you know, like uh, it's uh, it's not offensive in any way, and uh, like it's uh, it's pretty uh, it's pretty middle of the road seven, I would definitely say. So yeah, I would say seven point five. I'm giving it the point five because of just how amazing the animation is. But I do agree with the seven portion in which like it's a basic story with basic characters and a basic um, presentation, but. You know what? The point five that they did in which they were able to break new ground with utilizing the cap system that they would use all the way from this movie to Home on the Range. And then eventually they switch over to doing everything digitally. And, um, you know, they focus more on the computer work and they basically said, yeah, 2D animation's dead. So, yeah, I think that if you want to see where the glorious animation that we've seen in like Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, The Lion King all started, then come here. Now, how would we rank this compared to the other movies from the Disney Renaissance era? Oof, that's really tough because well, um, I, th I think even fair to say, I mean, like, uh, let's have a look at like some of the Disney movies that were like coming out before the Rescue is Down Under was coming out. Okay, so, sure. Like, um, like, I, I can tell you that because, I, as I mentioned before, I actually did do this the podcast uh, with um with Chris. So the movies that came out before were Black Cauldron, The Great Mouse Detective, Oliver and Company, and then The Little Mermaid. Mm -hmm. And then we got Rescuers Down Under. Yeah, but, you know, like, uh, there was a lot of average, you know, like away from the animated movies. Like, I mean, they had Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, like, uh, before this came out. They had Cheetah as well. And then they had, like, a Return to Snowy Weaver and, uh, you know, Benji the Hunted. And, uh, you know, also the Brave Little Toaster came out of, the, you know, three years before this. And, uh, you know, and also, yeah, also there was a great mouse success and Flight of the Navigator, too. So, I mean, like, uh, and Return to Oz, which, uh, I mean, some people are kind of like divided on that movie a little bit. But then also there's the uh, the uh, the infamous Black Cauldron that, you know, we've mentioned. Yeah. Before, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, like Disney was not on a good run of movies besides The Little Mermaid. They weren't on that great of a, of a, of a run of, of movies until, obviously, they started breaking ground with, like, you know, places like the little mermaid aladdin and the beauty and the beast and such you know? yeah so i mean now a lot of people have been asking me oh patricia every time that you do a discussion about the eras you never talk about what would you rank them or what you know what was your your favorite and your least favorite and yeah i mean if we ever get to the end of all the eras i'm sure chris and i will probably talk about you know what was our favorites and least favorites from that era um, as for like the, the, the Disney Renaissance era, I mean, that's really hard to say. I mean, some people would point Pocahontas as the worst, or some people would put Hercules as the worst, but I don't know. I, I still probably need to like rewatch all the movies back to back to back to back in order for me to give a definitive answer. But I would say now that I rewatched this, I would definitely put it like maybe in the lower end of the Disney classics during that time period. I mean, it's not going to be as fondly remembered as, say, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, or even The Lion King. So it's definitely, like, like a little bit lower tier. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a very long discussion, I have to say, uh, for uh, what we thought was a pretty average movie. So, uh... <laughs> I mean, that's what we're here for in Search of the Crystal Skull. We talk about, um, you know, movies that had gotten average scores, and we talk about if they deserve merit or were they deservingly so, given the average scores. Mm -hmm. So, until next time, my name is Aaron. My name is Patricia. Take care, and bye-bye for now. See you later.